So welcome to this episode of Seen and Solved. I'm Tim Pennington, Editor-in-Chief at FinishingEncoding.com. Today we're talking with Robin Deal, who's the Product Manager for the Aquapure line at Hubbard Hall. And today we're going to be talking about wastewater treatment. I'm Tim Pennington, and you're listening to Seen and Solved, brought to you by Hubbard Hall. Better results, less chemistry. And the topic that is going to be really what Robin gives. Robin, you give this uh, talk a lot when you're out in, in the at some of the chapters and associations. Uh, seven things I wish I knew about wastewater treatment, correct? I do give it. A couple of other smaller local chapters have asked for it. I think it's something that we kind of change up a little bit to keep it interesting, but the seven key points are always there for us. My publication, we've had in the past month uh, two incidents where We've had shops who sort of weren't paying too close of attention to their wastewater. Uh, there was a, a, a shop where two owners uh, are, are going to be actually pled guilty uh, to sort of uh, subverting the proper wastewater treatment under fel of, of federal charges, and they're now facing felonies. They'll be sentenced in, in January. And then we had another incident where a, a large, very large operation in um, uh, Michigan uh had a, a, I guess, an accidental leak, so to speak. And uh, now the FBI is involved and the uh, the state uh, investigators are involved. And, and they're going to be facing a, a tremendous uphill battle uh, in the next year or so to kind of get their clear their name on that, don't you think? Definitely. Um, we've seen an increase in incidences with manufacturers not fully understanding laws and regulations around their industrial wastewater treatment um, across the Southeast as well as the Midwest. There have been, even out in California, we're seeing an increase in um, these types of incidences where I don't think that most manufacturers understand how critical it is that they follow the law for their pretreat permits. Um, I think because they are pre-treat permits and the, their wastewaters are being discharged to a city, they feel like the city should be able to treat as well and be their backup plan. Um, unfortunately, right. <laughs> that doesn't work. That doesn't work. Doesn't work. Yes. Uh, municipal plants are not set up to treat industrial wastewater. They're set up to treat um, human waste, stormwater runoff and restaurant waste, stuff like that, more biologically based. And so our in our industry, specifically metal finishing, when we discharge untreated water to the cities, we can wreck the city wastewater treatment plant. We can kill their entire biofilm, biological activity, and then they can no longer do their portion of the treatment safely. Right. Yeah. It, it's going to be, yeah, it, it seems like it's going to get very important. And, and and I guess the fallout of this is going to be, you're going to see a lot of more, I'm sure every wastewater, uh, every, every city treatment city in, in Michigan is now going to play even closer attention to facilities like plating operations now. Um, so they're going to bring heavy scrutiny. So it's important. This is a very important topic. So uh, let's start off, like I said, seven things I wish I knew about wastewater treatment. And I think you started to answer it real quickly there, but um, what exactly is wastewater treatment and why is it critically important to any of these operations? So wastewater treatment at its core is the removal of contaminants from water that has been used for some purpose so that it can safely be discharged back into the environment or it can be recycled 
back into a useful purpose. For metal finishers, that is the removal of the metals that we have in our wastewater. It's the removal of chelation that ties those metals up. Some instances, it's the removal of phosphorus that can impede um, a healthy environment if the water is discharged in the environment. So that is what wastewater treatment is. And there is a multiple ways to do it. Um, but like we were talking earlier, it's critical that it gets done. There are rules, regulations, and laws set in place that says if we don't treat our wastewater prior to discharge, mm -hmm. we can be fined heavily and possibly go to jail. As you mentioned, the two owners of the, that one facility will be going to jail. Right. Or shipped or excluded from the system. Correct. I mean, the one in Michigan, I think they couldn't operate. The city said, nope, you're not going to you're not going to give us anything. And so where do you go then? Right. You're completely out of business uh, if you don't get it working properly because you can't tap into uh, the municipal system. Correct. That is correct. Yeah. So let me see. Why does it what what makes metal finishing wastewater treatment so complicated for some places, uh, some some do it very well, right? They have systems in place, but why is it so complicated for others to treat? It depends on what the metal finisher is doing. If they don't have a lot of chelated cleaners, if they're not doing electroless nickel, which is heavily chelated, if they're not putting a lot of organics, if there's not a lot of stair rates in their wastewater, it's pretty easy and straightforward to treat. So that's one side of it. The other side is there is no set. Everybody has the same discharge when they do a pretreatment permit. A city in Charlotte, North Carolina may give a nickel plater a limit of two for their nickel discharge, two milligrams per liter, where a city in Boston, a metal, nickel metal plater in Boston may have a limit of 1.5. There's a lot of variances in city to city, state to state, and then a lot of variances in what types of cleaners are these are these guys using? What types of metal finishes are they doing? Um, with knowing what your limits are, where you're at, we have a plater in Michigan that has a zinc limit of 0.4 and another plater in Michigan that has a zinc limit of 2.6. Right. So what you're saying, so, so they give them limits, I know, on zinc and nickel and copper and certainly hexavalent chromium. They give them all these limits of what they'll allow, correct? That is correct. Yeah. And and that's where they've got to meet them. And, uh, you know, you know, it, it sounds to me like um, what compounds the problem is how the operation comes in and tries to treat these chemicals, which sometimes makes it worse, correct? That is correct. A lot of times we see guys saying, well, a little bit of this magic dust works. What if we had a whole lot? Right. Um, and then they wind up seeing their numbers actually increase because they don't understand that magic frou-frou dust or liquid right. that they call it is actually a chelator in itself. Right. So it's, it just happens to be stronger than what they already have in their wastewater. Right. So when they add uh, sulfide, sodium sulfide or ferrous sulfate, or they add a DTC or a carbonate, these chelating uh, agents, we call them metal precipitants because they will pull the metal from whatever 
chelation bond they're in and attach to the sulfide or the carbamate and then precipitate out. But if you overdose those products, then you now have a plethora of still dissolved, chelated in a different way, metals that won't come out. So it's a balancing act. Right. So when you go in uh, to a facility that's asked you all to come in and ask to, you know, to help out, figure out what's going on here, they've run over some limits. I mean, do you have any clues that tell you whether they're using too much chemicals right away? Or is it really, you have to dig down deep into it? Or is it pretty obvious that they're using just you know, too much of the chemicals uh, that's causing these additional problems? Sometimes it's pretty obvious. Sometimes we go in and um, we'll see in their clarifier, the flock will be floating or the mm -hmm. water will be a instead of being clear, it may have a tint to it or a smell to it. Um, one thing that a lot of people don't understand is when you overdose chemistry, it changes the feel of the water. So sometimes the water will feel slick or slimy, even though it'll be clear, it'll still feel off, dirty. Right, right. Which means it is, it means it yeah. is, right? <laughs> yeah, it means it is. Um, so there's, there's ways to tell. Sometimes it's not so obvious. Sometimes it's a fact finding. And we had one instance where an operator would just random. He was a night shift operator. He would turn up the chemistry at night and they wouldn't see the and turn it down before the day shift operators came in. Right. And then because the water pushing through wouldn't push through until the day shift operators were on they couldn't understand what was happening. Right, because they weren't changing anything. Right. Ah, gotcha. Question I was going to ask is that, you know, the obvious thing about wastewater is if there's a spill, right? But uh, a lot of times it's just they're releasing it directly into the, you know, they think they're treating it and they're releasing it into the, the city's system. And that's where they get dinged on that. But but what happens if they have a spill? Uh, or You know, and what regulations then come into effect? I know they have to report it, correct? Uh, correct. They have to report it. Well, then what happens then? So all manufacturing facilities should have emergency response plans in place that also have a section that covers their wastewater. If they discharge wastewater, what to do when there is a spill? They have a certain amount of time, depending on what is spilled, that they have to contact their receiving authority. So whatever city they're discharging to. Unfortunately, we do have some manufacturers that discharge directly to the environment and they have to report directly to the state EPA level um, when they have emergency spills. When the, then they have to initially, first thing first, shut the system down, block all water from leaving the plant until they can figure out how to solve the problem. Um, sometimes it's unfortunate that the water that is contaminated has already left the plant and it's it, at that point, it's out of their hands. They can't fix it. But if they can catch it before it leaves the plant, stop it from leaving the plant. That's the ideal situation. There's things in place now uh, that wasn't there 10 years ago. We have remote monitoring capabilities. We can set up alarms that tell us our chemical feeds are not feeding properly. Our pumps aren't working right. We can set up cameras to watch our discharge 
pipes and make sure that the water coming out stays the same clarity. So if we employ those and we utilize them the way they were designed, we'll, we will see a, a decrease in these instances of um, unnecessary spills to the cities. Right, releases. You know, in the case of the one in Michigan, the reports have come out from the state that the alarms were overridden over 460 times in a matter of an hour and a half. So that didn't work, right? And and they, I know the 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 state and and the town there asked them to come up with an immediate plan, which they tied it into their system wide ERP, which is probably a smart move, correct? Uh, so that it cannot be overridden. Uh, that if so, there's an alarm, everybody in the facility, especially those monitoring it uh, from afar, will know what's going on. And that seemed to be the problem here, correct? Is that it was just a localized alarm, and uh, but. I guess the advice would be to put it into the entire ERP system so everybody knows what's going on. Right. So we have seen some plants that don't have remote monitoring capabilities where the alarms only alarm at the wastewater system. And what they've done to combat that is they've um, put big flashing lights over the wastewater area and speakers throughout the entire plant so that one alarm, nobody's really worried, but if, if four alarms go off, whoever is running the plant, whether it's the plating line manager, or the maintenance manager, the actual plant manager. Now they're gonna be aware. Now they're aware and they go and say, hey, <laughs> what's going on? It shouldn't just fall to the wastewater operator mm -hmm. to handle multiple alarms. Um, because sometimes wastewater operators are stretched thin. They're running the plating line. They're taking parts, they're moving parts for the manufacturer around. And they think it's just alarming because it's broke and I'll fix it in a little bit. Right. And so they override the alarm. Well, even if they have a dedicated wastewater operator, correct? A lot of this is sort of the second or third job on the job description, isn't it? Uh, Yes, <laughs> it's not the main one because uh, face it. I mean, a lot of the wastewater lines and systems are supposed to run themselves, right? You don't have to stand there and watch it uh, or turn buttons and things every hour. They're supposed to do it themselves for the most part, correct? Which is why it's not job one for a lot of facilities. They don't have a dedicated wastewater operator. Or do you find that different? No, you're right. A lot of equipment manufacturers sell wastewater systems on it's going to run itself. You won't have to have someone here to watch it. And it will run itself until. Until something goes wrong. Until something goes wrong. <laughs> so we have um, an interesting customer in that they don't have one person dedicated to wastewater. Mm. The entire plant is responsible for wastewater. They all get notified when an alarm goes off. They all take turns emptying the press. Um, filling up chemical feeds, making down the polymer. Every person who works for them at least once a day puts their eyes on the wastewater system. Right, right. You know, it's funny. I, I've talked to two operators in the past, I'd say six months, who both said something to me similar, that they were the waste, they were the head wastewater operator for their facilities. They were the owners, right? Which, you know, now that I think about it, it's probably not a good idea. Right. Uh, it's got to be a little bit shady uh, that they are the wastewater operator because you're right. It does need to be, you know, 
basically when the operation is going, somebody needs to be on the floor available to look at these things, right? That's probably not a good practice, would you say? I'm, I always advocate to having one person dedicated to wastewater. An owner of a facility, if it's a small facility that maybe only employs 10 people, they may be the person dedicated to it. Right. Because they don't have enough flexible people. Even though they're the person dedicated to it, though, they should always have two other sets of eyes. Right, redundancy, right. A and B, when you hear an alarm, if it happens two times within five minutes, one of you needs to come help me. Right, gotcha. Uh, let, let's talk about over in general. What would be one thing you would eliminate from wastewater treatment overall? What would be one thing you would take out? If I could eliminate, I think I would eliminate foam. Foam is a problem that most people don't realize is a problem until they're like, oh my God, that's a problem. Um, what do you mean by foam? Explain that to me. So foam forms in manufacturing processes um, mm -hmm. from cleaning applications, from vibratory applications, and it's important in manufacturing. But what happens is it entraps contaminants in its structure so that when it gets to wastewater, if it manages to make it through every part of wastewater without breaking down and it leaves the facility, it still has those contaminants in it. Is it because it's above the water, the foam? Is that what... Well, it's because of the structure of the bubble just entraps the contaminants. Ah, gotcha. So while it's needed and necessary and wanted in many applications in manufacturing, wastewater is something that we get calls from all the time. I just had a call this week about a company here in South Carolina that has uh, foam tumbleweeds in that are just like being blown away from their clarifier across their parking lot. That's not good. It's not a good sign. Not a good optics to have that. So what, what, how do you get rid of foam then? So there's, there's defoamers and there's anti-foamers. Uh, defoamers are what's typically used in wastewater because the foam's already formed. Right. And we add these liquids to make the foam break apart in the first tank of the wastewater treatment system. Anti-foamers can be added to manufacturing processes to prevent the foam from forming or to reduce the amount of foam that forms, say in a cleaner or um, a vibratory process. So those are two options. Another thing is um, activated carbon. A lot of municipal plants will use activated carbon if they have, have a huge increase in foam from a manufacturer. But uh, so, and these are products that you all would sell to, you know, be able to put right into the system, kind of eliminates it right away then with that. Another thing that we see that a lot of people don't realize is if you have a heavy solids load in your wastewater, mm -hmm. specifically from vibratory finishing, you will see an increase in your foam formations in wastewater. So you really need to pull your solids out of your wastewater. You know, I, I've often heard a lot of shops talk about they, they would love to go zero liquid discharge. And I, I'm assuming that speaks for itself exactly what it is. They're not sending anything to the city or the municipal wastewater treatment, correct? It seems like that's got to be very expensive. But what is zero discharge? 
So zero liquid discharge is exactly that. Um, when a manufacturer says we would love to go zero liquid discharge, that's our ISO 14001 standard. That's our end goal for environmental. We don't want to discharge any liquid. What that means is they're going to take their wastewater, they're going to remove every contaminant that needs to be removed, and they're going to put it back in process. Mm -hmm. um, now, how far down the line do you want to go with that? How clean does your water have to be? Right. Do you need uh, de deionized water or would distilled water be adequate? Or do you need tap water clean, which still has some contaminants? Maybe it's um, not got the same metals in it and you're going to use it for non-critical rinsing. It, it can get very expensive very quickly to go to 100% zero liquid discharge. Um, a lot of those types of systems have evaporators, they have um, membrane filtration, they have distilling units, they have um, sludge drying units. So each component you know, can cost a couple hundred thousand dollars to build a system like that. So when we have a customer that tells us we want to go zero liquid discharge, we have to really ask them, what do you think that means? What would that look like for you? And maybe it's not 100% zero liquid discharge. Maybe it's a 50-50. Maybe you recover 50% of your wastewater for non-critical buildup of um, like inner tanks. You get it as clean enough to do that job. And then the other 50% you discharge. Right. Well, uh, you know, w water costs are extremely high, right? And a lot of these plants is, and I read somewhere where, you know, there's only really 3% of all the water on the earth that's available to humans. Uh, and it, so it's going to be a, a, a priority and a commodity. And in some areas of the country, it's very expensive. And, and some of these shops are using, you know, Ten, you know, thousands of gallons a day. Does that so that does that reduce the amount of water that they're using every day, or is it uh, with a zero charge system? Water water recovery systems will reduce the amount of fresh water that a manufacturer is bringing in to make up, whether it be from the city or from a well that they have on site. Um, water recovery systems are not quite the same as zero liquid discharge, right? And they're not as labor intensive in some cases it involves running the water through carbon filtration um, to remove the organics and sand filtration to remove the solids perhaps they're doing some metal precipitation but if it's mainly from their clean cleaners and rinses there's not going to be a lot of that so those types of systems are a lot have a lot smaller footprint so as manufacturers, we draw the water from, from our communities, whether it's from the water table, from a well, or directly from the city. It's, it's our responsibility to ensure that we use that water safely mm -hmm. and with purpose and we don't waste it. Right. And that we treat it with the respect that I think it deserves. Right. I was going to say, can there be a return on investment of the uh, you know zero discharge equipment uh, by saving the water usages? Or because I've heard some people say, well, we you know we were using you know forty thousand gallons a day and we went down to 
you know, I guess if you're zero discharge, you're, you're, you're recouping a lot of that, but is there a possibility to have a ROI that would, uh, it would pay for itself or is that just not is it too high of a cost to do that? What we, what I hear from our, a lot of our customers, when we work with our equipment partners to give them a zero liquid discharge system, all the bells and whistles, it's going to, they're going to discharge zero. They're going to capture all of the water, all of the steam is that it is too expensive right now. The, the technology is just not there. So then we start scaling down things and we find that comfort level for them where maybe they're recouping 50% of the water. The equipment is within a five year ROI and they're happy with that. Everybody wants to be environmentally sustainable. We want to do the right thing, but at the same time we have to run facilities. We have to pay our employees. We have to pay our taxes. We have to turn a profit to stay in operation and we can't spend that entire profit on wastewater treatment. Gotcha. Uh, last question, just, you know, as we, we, we try to solve this problem of wastewater. So, you know, why should a manufacturer care about wastewater treatment? I think we mentioned earlier how, you know, the heavy hand of the law will come down on you. Uh, but, you know, why should they care about having a proper wastewater treatment system in place? For me, we should care because we live in the cities and the towns and the communities where we draw our water and we discharge our water. We don't want to pollute our population. We don't want to kill people. And um, unfortunately, a lot of the metal finishing processes have extremely toxic chemicals that are used. That's, that's first and foremost why we should care. The second is how, how do we truly understand our cost to manufacture a part if we don't understand our water cost. If we don't understand one gallon of wastewater leaving our facility is equal to $1 of profit or 50 cents of profit. And we do have one customer in Alabama that actually broke down for every single piece that they manufactured, how much wastewater was generated and how much profit that what gallon of wastewater that was generated equated for them as in terms of that actual piece being sold. Right. Wow. That's, that's detailed, but you got to know, right. You've got to know what these costs are so you can measure, uh, like you said, whether you can afford to improve systems or things like that. So that's pretty detailed. I think a lot of metal finishers don't know how much water does it take to make an automobile? Right. How much water not does it take to make a screw to hold a hold a piece together? Right. They know labor charges, right? They know labor. They know labor. But I think we're gonna see a shift in thinking in the next few years where labor labor costs are only gonna be one piece of the pie. Labor costs, chemical costs, transportation costs, and then we're gonna really start talking about water costs. Right. Well, like I said, we won't even get into at this point uh, the new PFOS regulations and how that deals with wastewater treatment, but that's another episode. So we'll get to that, but uh, that's going to be a whole problem in, in and of itself with that. But uh, but anyway, well, listen, Robin Deal, product manager for Aquapure, thank you for joining us today. Much appreciate all that great insight. 
Thank you, Tim. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. All right. And thank you for joining us and come back and see us again on another edition of Seen and Solved. Seen and Solved is brought to you by Hubbard Hall. Better results, less chemistry. For more podcasts, go to HubbardHall.com or wherever you get your podcasts.